This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to Analyze This, the self-help podcast that just can't help itself. Today, Hannah Gelb and I are lucky enough to talk to the one, the only, Dr. Beatrice Chestnut. Yes, she has a PhD. As we explore the complete Enneagram, 27 paths to greater self-knowledge. How do these little numbers help us understand ourselves? Well, I don't know yet. Let's find out. Hey, Hannah Gelb, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. I feel very stimulated because uh, we have a very special guest who is such an expert. She's like the most experty expert I think we've ever had on the show, possibly. I mean, and as you know, we are not think- experts. <laughs> Indeed, I know. I mean, I'm sitting here, I'm a little bit starstruck because I'm holding the complete Enneagram, 27 Paths to Greater Self-Knowledge by Beatrice Chestnut, PhD. I mean, have we ever even had a PhD on the show before? I don't think so. I do not think so. And it is such an honor and a pleasure to have Dr. Beatrice here. (laughs) I just had to have one doctor in there. Beatrice Chestnut, thank you so much for being here. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. So a little bit about Analyze This. Uh, We like to call it the self-help podcast that just can't help itself. Um, We are not experts, but we are enthusiasts in the subject of all things self-help related, mental health related, and I suppose personality related. Um, I kind of feel like those are vaguely intertwined. (laughs) I think we're uh, enthusiastic about just all things in general that exist. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I could get excited. I really, I could get excited about a paint color. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Beatrice, why don't you tell us a little bit about your relationship to the, the Enneagram or actually tell us a little bit about the Enneagram itself. Sure. The Enneagram is uh, a personality typology uh, and it's, it's built around a framework. The reason it's called the Enneagram that is a diagram that's basically a nine pointed figure inscribed in a circle. Uh, It's an ancient symbol that carries a lot of meaning with it. It's the symbol of different things, but in terms of personality styles, it's basically the framework for these nine types that are interconnected, and it's a growth model. It's a way of understanding ourselves better, of creating more self-awareness and more awareness of other people's perspectives, and so it really helps you develop a higher level of consciousness of what you do and how you interact with others. Uh, And it really helps people to understand each other better by getting a window into patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving associated with the personality that can often be unconscious. 
And so it sheds light on unconscious patterns and blind spots so that we can know ourselves better uh, and make more conscious choices. One of the things I really like that you said in the beginning is that a lot of the times we think we already understand why we act and feel the way we do, but we actually don't <laughs> largely. And that was kind of a little uh, ego bump for me because I like always imagine I'm just so incredibly self-aware. So um, that was very good for me to read. So you have a PhD in communication and a master's in clinical psychology. So you know what you're talking about. You've been working with the Enneagram for 27 years what makes this personality model the most useful to you? Because, I mean, I know there are so many out there. So what is it about this one that makes it the one for you? Well, it's interesting. I This was really the first one I studied. I was never really that interested in personality typologies. I took only one class in, in psychology in my undergraduate years, and it was the I got the worst grade in that of any class. When I came across the Enneagram, I was really surprised because it described me to myself with so much accuracy. It was really surprising. And so I I just think that there's a way that the Enneagram, two things, I think it clarifies a lot, like it operates on different levels, not just say cognitive functioning or behavior, but mental activity, beliefs, emotions, patterns of emotional Uh, interactions and just what feelings we feel but don't, and also the behaviors that we tend to do and not do, and also how these are kind of interconnected. And so it just, it gives, it's a very powerful system in terms of the accuracy and the amount of information that it gives you about yourself. And it also is something that helps you also understand other people a lot. Mm. A lot of times when people learn the Enneagram, they they realize, wow, I, I thought that everyone saw the world the way I do, but it's it just gives very accurate pictures of these nine different windows onto the world. Mm. Wow, that that's going to be awkward when I get when I start talking about how much I disagree with my assessment. <laughs> no <I'm> kidding. <laughs> not, I can't wait to try and figure out everybody in my family what number they are. And then badger them constantly. It feels like you're unlocking a little bit of a superpower here, Beatrice, because you walk <laughs> around the world and then do you just see people's numbers like float above their head <laughs> as you spend time with them? Uh, I don't. I don't. I mean, sometimes I will say, sometimes it kind of leaps out at you, but other times, it, you know, you don't really know until you really talk to someone and have the opportunity to ask them a lot of questions about what's going on inside. Love that. Oh, that mm. is fascinating. So for our listeners who are like, guys, get to the good stuff. What is this thing? Can you tell us a little bit about what each of these nine types are? Um, You know, kind of like the log line or a brief summation of each of the nine. Sure. So in the Enneagram model, it's based on the idea that we have three centers of intelligence, not just one. In the West, we tend to think of our head as our one center of intelligence. But according to the Enneagram model, we have three brains or three centers uh, uh, through which we process information from the outside world, our head that thinks and analyzes, our heart that is based more on emotions, and so heart types focus more on relationships and relating to people through empathy, and then our body center, which is about gut knowing and moving into action or not moving into action, instinctive intelligence and kinesthetic intelligence. And so the idea is there are three types that are based in each of these three 
centers and each type kind of overuses one center more than the other two. And in some ways, the Enneagram is a model of wholeness, but talks about how when we identify with a specific personality, we kind of tend to come from one perspective. We see 360 degrees of reality through a narrow slice. Each of these types is has kind of perceptual filters through which they see the world. And the, the types are really based a lot on focus of attention. So if we start with eight, nine, and one, which are body-based types, eights tend to see the world in terms of power and strength. They're, they see the world in terms of the big picture. They tend to sense where power is oriented and who has it and who doesn't. And they see the world in terms of the weak and the strong, and they identify as being strong. And so they tend to have a big energy access to a lot of strength and tend to be have an easier time with anger and conflict. They are people who are can be very protective of others, can like to tackle big challenges, uh, things like that. Nines are sometimes, so eights are sometimes, I don't use the names or the labels in my books because I think they can be a bit misleading, but sometimes people like them in the beginning. Eights can sometimes be called the boss Nine is sometimes called the mediator. The nine is a type that is about harmony and peace and avoiding conflict and staying comfortable. One is sometimes called the perfectionist or the reformer. And ones see the world in terms of good and bad and right and wrong and how something can be improved so it can be as good as it can possibly be. They tend to notice the difference between how could something could be more perfect and where it is. Those are the body-based types. Two, three, and four are heart-based types. Twos tend to see the world in terms of relationships, and they want people to like them. And they're sometimes depicted as givers and helpers, but that's usually too simplistic. Twos offer strategic help, and it's really about creating positive rapport with other people and wanting to be seen in a positive light. Supporting others can be a a vehicle or a means to an end, which is um, being important to other people. And then threes are sometimes called the performer. Twos, threes, and fours all kind of got the message in childhood that they weren't loved or appreciated for who they really are, but for kind of what they do or the image they create. Twos, you know, feel like they're more appreciated when they do things for others and do things to please others. Threes aim to be successful in the eyes of others. So they're achievers. They're very goal-oriented, task-oriented. They get a lot done. And even though they're heart types, they can sort of turn the volume down on their emotions so that they can get more things done. Because as twos and fours know, getting in a mood can get in the way of getting a lot done. And twos and fours tend to be a little more emotional. And then fours- Oh, dang. <laughs> fours, tend to, fours are sometimes called the artist uh, or the individualist. And fours want to be seen as uh, special or unique. And whereas twos and threes are more shapeshifters, fours are like to be authentic they're truth tellers. They tend to see what's missing in a given situation. They have a comparing mind. They tend to compare themselves to others, often find themselves lacking in comparison, but sometimes find themselves a little more superior in comparison or special. But fours are very oriented toward connection and disconnection with other people. And then five, sixes, and sevens are head-based types and fives are more introverted. Fours are the most into, in, emotional or mo- and connected to their emotions of all the types. 
Fives are the least connected. They tend to automatically disconnect from emotion and go into their thinking function. And fives are more introverted. They're oriented to want to have a lot of privacy and alone time. And they're very concerned with regulating their time and energy and inner resources and not getting depleted by the outside world and especially other people's emotions or demands on them. Sixes are sometimes called the loyal skeptic or the devil's advocate, and they tend to be oriented toward safety and certainty, and they look for threats and problems so that they can get out ahead of them and and figure out what they need to do to prepare for what might go wrong, solve problems before they happen, make contingency plans so that if the worst happens, they're ready. And they can be slow to trust people because they're kind of looking for false pretenses. And again, what could go wrong, whether it's in something that's happening, a task thing or, or a person. Sevens, lastly, are, well, they tend to be very positive, very enthusiastic, optimistic, always looking on the bright side. They tend to focus on pleasure and what feels good as an unconscious avoidance of what doesn't feel good or as a fear of getting trapped in an unpleasant emotional experience. Of course, that can be unconscious for them. It can just feel like, hey, I'm just focusing on what feels good and what's interesting to think about. They tend to be very future-oriented and very kind of -of out-of-the-box thinkers uh, and really focused on, you know, optimistic view of things, again, as a way of not getting trapped in something unpleasant. That's the really quick version. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like I just gained, I feel like I just gained a wrinkle in my mind. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I have to say that as someone, um, although I've only, though my partner and I took the online test, like just one of the free ones and she got an eight. And so when you said eights tend to be the boss, uh, I was like, oh yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds, that sounds okay. <laughs> but so in, in, in speaking about partnership, um, I know a lot of people like to try and take, you know, personality tests to not only deepen their understanding of themselves, but also figure out like, oh, is the person I'm dating right? Or what kind of person should I even be pursuing? Um, do you feel like, you know, the, I don't want to say like the Enneagram can be bastardized to this effect, but is there like, how can we make a dating app based on the Enneagram is what you're saying, basically? Yeah. 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 Do you see, um, can you tell us a little bit about how that, uh, the Enneagram relates to romantic or, or partnership, you know, or does it at all? Sure. Well, I think that, uh, the Enneagram is a really good tool for people to use who are in relationship to understand each other better. I've heard people say the Enneagram saved their marriage. Uh, I used a lot when I was a couples counselor. Yeah, because all of a sudden you get a window into how someone really is as opposed to what you're projecting onto them. Um, which is what we all do in relationships. Um, so it's, it really helps people see, uh, what someone else's worldview is, what someone else's biases are, what someone else's focus of attention is, and all kinds of other things so that they can really see the person more as they are and not just as sort of a projection of what they think they are. Mm. Yeah, that that is one of those things you constantly have to kind of, of check when you're in a relationship is, is, you know, are you asking me if I feel uncomfortable or do you feel uncomfortable? And this is your way of telling me that. Right. You know? Yeah. Oh my gosh. And Hannah Hart, now we can have all these great fights where, you know, you're like, I'm a two. So that really offends me. And then I can be like, well, I didn't mean that because 
I'm four and I'm very emotional. I feel like and we're going to be like, it's going to be really good for our friendship. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. And uh, this is always, I guess, kind of the hiccup that I run into in these studies of self um, is that, you know, A, two things. One, people grow, people change. Hopefully, if anything, people are evolving into being their their highest, bestest self, potentially, maybe. Um, so I want to address that a little bit. But I also want to say that the Enneagram relies on the narrator and if the a reliable narrator and someone who maybe doesn't have the same level of self-awareness will always be kind of giving like false positives, like as their answers. You know what I mean? Or how do you ever really know that your level of self-awareness is enough? To know what your Enneagram is. How do you deal with that? Or does that even come up as like a potential source of like conflict in the studies? So uh, to take your first point first, um, the Enneagram is a growth model. So in addition to it providing really accurate descriptions of types, another big reason why I like it so much and think it in some ways is, is more powerful to work with than other personality approaches is that it is a growth model, is that it's all about understanding where you are now so that you can go beyond that to see what kind of, a lot of times people will say, well, I don't want to be put in a box. The Enneagram puts me in a box. And what someone who knows the Enneagram will would say is, well, you're already in a box. You just don't know it. And the Enneagram helps you see the dimensions of the box you're in so that you can actually get out of it. Personality is actually a path to getting beyond the personality, to recognizing you're much more than your personality, although you tend to mistakenly identify or over-identify with your personality or your persona. So it's it's all about growth. It's not about making excuses for ourselves like, oh, well, I just did that because I'm a two and I'm a two. So you just have to deal with it because I'm a two. It's like, no, I'm a two. And so I need to take responsibility for recognizing that some of my automatic patterns and habits are going to be certain things. And I'm going to need to needing to be really conscious of them to see if they're working for me or not, you know, and I need to take in feedback from the outside world to see how I'm impacting people so that I can make decisions if I want to continue to do the same thing I habitually do or work to have a wider range of ways of being in the world. So that so that's one thing. It's a big right. growth model. The second thing is around the self-awareness level and are we faulty narrators? And so when we find our type, how is that complicated by the fact that we might not be fully self-aware? One of the things the Enneagram model points out to us is that we all have blind spots. And the beauty of the Enneagram is it highlights those blind spots. Now, it does make it more complicated when you're first finding your type because it can make it harder to know which type is really my type because who I think I am can be different than who I actually am. Or it may point out certain things about my personality type and I say, well, that's not me, but it actually is me. It's just that it's a blind spot and I'm not seeing that it's me. So the typing process can be a bit tricky because of that. And that's why one of the many reasons why taking an online test, especially uh, a lot of them out there, especially ones that are free and things and low cost, they tend to be wrong and inaccurate. And they're wrong for many reasons, but one of the reasons why they tend to be wrong is because we don't always know every, we're not always faithful self-reporters. We don't always, when we answer questions on a test, are you like this? We can say, no, I'm not like this, but actually I am like this. I just don't own it. I don't see it. I don't recognize that because it's a blind spot. 
it makes mm. typing trickier, but it is one of the advantages of the Enneagram that it helps us become more self-aware and more conscious of our blind spots. Hopefully. <laughs> yes, that is the hope. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is the hope. No, I really, I like that. The, the, the idea of self-knowledge not less necessarily being like an excuse, but a, an example Rather, something that you can kind of just know, you know, and I think this will be easier to discuss less vaguely once we go into what the results of our types are. But let's say you're a seven and you know you're a seven and you realize that your seven type tendencies are um, influencing your decisions. So if you continue to go towards your seven type tendencies, you're going to be stuck in the same pattern. But if you have a goal that will involve doing a different pattern, you'll need to check that and put it to the side. Is that what you're saying for the growth model? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Like once you start really recognizing and the Enneagram is necessarily used in conjunction with some sort of effort at self-observation. And so if you observe, I keep doing the same thing over and over again as a seven. And there are instances in my life where it's really not working. You can gain more insight into what you're doing and why you're doing it. And by seeing it and recognizing that it's just a pattern, you know, it's not necessarily a big bad thing. It's just something that you're caught up in because it's so familiar and maybe it worked uh, in an early situation. Um, it doesn't mean you have to keep doing it and it can give you, it can develop sort of an inner observer that helps you see these things and creates more in thinking space inside your mind to be able to say, maybe I want to do it differently this time, or maybe I want to move towards something that I tend to move away from as a way of having more mm. flexibility and more potential to experience more things in my life. Mm. I love that. Pa- pa- patterns are powerful things. It's scary when you try and change them because effectively you're kind of learning how to walk again. You're going into a, a world that you've never known before. If you've only done one s- series of behaviors in response to actions, it's people, et cetera, um, it's, it, it can be really scary to try and shift those patterns. Yes, oh, yes. exactly. So uh, Beatrice, what, how do the types work together? Is it kind of like we are prominently one, but we can kind of see all the other types surface sometimes, or is the idea kind of to shift towards a number that is kind of has the strengths that your number lacks or like what is the ideal in that way? So there are several different growth opportunities offered by the Enneagram model. First of all, it's important to grow within your type. In other words, there's a vertical dimension to this. The horizontal dimension is there are these nine types. They're all more or less equal and having strengths and challenges, but there's a vertical dimension and that is growing, understanding my type so that I can grow and become more and more conscious as the type I am, you know, the whole system describes sort of a, how we have lower centers. We, when we're in personality, it's a state of consciousness that is necessarily, by definition, a limited state of consciousness. But the more we get conscious of that limited, that our limitations, the more we can kind of grow within our type. And so there are specific things to learn and challenges to meet that are just about your type that help you become more conscious and and sort of create a higher level of awareness in this vertical dimension that we can imagine. On the other hand, each type is connected to four other types on the diagram. The types right next to it, for instance, if you're a four, uh, on one side of you along the circle is three, on the other side is five. Those types are sometimes called wing points. 
Now, I have a big disagreement with the way wings are sometimes treated in the Enneagram world is they're treated as this sort of hard and fast, really concrete set of traits that go along with like, I'm a four with a three wing and it looks like this all the time or versus a four with a five wing that looks like this all the time. I don't think it's that hard and fast. I think it's more fluid and more individual. That all said, these wing points do influence us. They're, they're, they're flavor our main type. And it's likely that we relate to those types and we can learn more about ourselves by noticing, okay, if I'm a two, how am I kind of like a one sometimes? And how am I sometimes like a three? So on one hand, we it's just a more to learn about how we operate. On the other hand, those wing points are also growth opportunities, kind of like you were suggesting in your question. So like if I'm a two, there may be times when I'm in a challenging situation where I maybe say I'm feeling, I'm really in a, in a mood and so I can't really get done what I need to get done. Well, threes are really good at getting things done and kind of turning the volume down on, on their feelings so they can be more productive. And sometimes it may serve me to do what healthy threes do. Uh, and so I can sort of lean into my three wing almost to expand beyond the narrower scope of being just identified with my main type. And we can do that with either wing. And so these are growth stretches as well. But there are also two other types we're connected to. And if, if you look at the Enneagram diagram, each main type is connected to two other types uh, uh, in the symbol along these inner arrow lines. And sometimes the arrows are there and sometimes they aren't, but the Enneagram should be thought of as in motion. You know, if we're really imagining the Enneagram, it's moving along these arrows. It's like a three-dimensional. Exactly. It's three. It's actually a globe and there are these Mm. um, more uh, platonic solids inside. And so it's actually a symbol of movement and having a personality is sort of a way of stubbornly resisting the movement that life kind of brings us really naturally. If we're really open and healthy and conscious, we can kind of shift with what happens to us and meet it in different ways. But because we are identified with a personality and we're kind of sticking with what was what worked for us in the beginning and what's familiar and comfortable, sometimes we resist changing or flowing with the, the times and the challenges as they come to us. But when we're using the Enneagram for developing more expanded consciousness, we can use these particular two other arrow line points for growth. And sometimes we slide, they're, they're sort of like two types that we have more access to. That really struck me, what you said about the benefit of kind of knowing your your wings, and those are the the numbers that rest adjacent to your number or connected to your number on the chart. For for those of you try, trying to picture this in your mind's eye, you know, picture basically a clock face, but instead of a new instead of a twelve, it starts with a nine and it goes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And in that, they're all interconnecting um, on a sphere. So there you go. Hope that helped. But I re- <laughs> I really liked what you said though about having a behavior and then noting it doesn't serve you and then leaning towards your wing or your subtype that could handle that behavior. Just hearing you say, oh, well, if you're four, you can lean into your threeness at times. I was like, oh my God, I can do that. I feel so much better already. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It makes it, honestly, it makes it seem so much more reliable because, you know, um, of the three, there's the mind, the body, and the heart. So let's say you're one of the heart types and people are giving you very body or mind type solutions, instead of giving you, well, go focus more on the wing on the side of you that can relate to this. I I know that sounds very vague for those who haven't kind of gotten the brief overview of the Enneagram, but 
What I'm trying to say is that it makes it seem more possible and more approachable, and it puts it in a language that you might be able to understand. It's like, oh, as a heart type, I need to be slightly more logical, so I'm going to lean into my more logical heart type side, as opposed to I'm going to jump across the pond, I'm going to completely go into a realm I don't even exist in, and try and do that. Oh, wow, it's right, right, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it just kind of implies that all those things that you think you lack are actually already there all the time, but you can't access them, you know, most of the time because you're so busy yeah. thinking you're only one thing or you're just your personality. So, yeah, that's very encouraging. We're just in awe. We just want to be at a lecture. Uh, yeah, right now. we do. <laughs> Can we come to San yeah, Francisco really and do. just sit in your office maybe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. I wanted to ask about subtypes, but maybe it would be more helpful for our audience if we talked about ourselves and then go into our subtypes, kind of have more context. I completely agree. All right, yeah, let's, let's get it. to the let's get to the, <laughs> the inner work. Let's get to the good stuff. So, um we took a test that actually you recommended, I believe. Um yep. The test is the, uh, can you tell us a little bit about this test and why you consider it one of the best Enneagram tests? So again, there's a lot of bad tests out there. I think this is, this one is the better one. It's probably just the most accurate. It's called the IEQ-9. It's put out by Integrative Enneagram Solutions. It's just for various reasons, much more accurate than anything else that's out there. It's the only test that I would really take right now that's been developed. And it's the Integrative 9. The IEQ nine. I just want people to know so that if they're at home, and we'll put up a link for it. Um, this is not sponsored at all. It is a test you have to pay for, which unfortunately I found that tests you pay for often go hand in hand. Tests that A aren't convenient, B aren't short, and C you have to pay for are usually the more accurate tests. <laughs> yes. Well, let's start with you, Gilby. Uh, yes. Uh, I just want to say a little fun fact that when I was in therapy four or five years ago, my therapist was like, have you heard about the Enneagram? I think you're a four. So when I was taking this test, I just proved how much I am a four because I was so afraid that I would not be a four, which I feel is the most special of the types. And also fours want to be special. So there you go. Oh <laughs> I actually wrote, oh God, in the margin of one of the pages because I was like, this is too real. Yeah. Well, can you tell us a little bit about, so I believe that we shared our results with you. I was actually pretty surprised by mine, but let's, let's focus on the four for now because I have a four in my life named Hannah Gelb, who's very <laughs> dear to me. And um, I would love to hear kind of your thoughts on, you know, kind of like unpacking what the results mean. So what it means that if you come out as a four? I mean, are there some things that like Hannah should know about herself or, you know, <laughs> um, it's kind of hard. I, I, here's why I'm floundering. I'll be completely honest. I'm floundering because it feels very bizarre to ask you as a total expert, be like, so tell us about us and our results. <laughs> You know, I, well, maybe yeah. maybe I should yeah. start with something that really resonates so strongly with me is the four's sense of not being good, like lacking goodness. And I just wrote so many examples in this book of like, oh, my God, these are all the ways where I don't think I'm good. Like if I was good, I would be able to joyfully, you know, work with my problems. If I was good, I would have the strength to like go to bed early, like for me, like strength and goodness are like the same thing kind of. And I feel like 
those like that's where I'm lacking or I imagine I'm lacking. Also, I would like the strength to not need to be special. Because <laughs> that also makes me feel like that's kind of why I'm like, oh, God, the four is the worst one. No, I shouldn't say the worst one. I feel like it's the most insufferable because who wants to hang out with someone who's like, I'm so special. Yeah. I mean, when you find your type, it's it's not always good news. Um, there's a kind of an ick factor that is just there with most types, not, not every type. But yeah, so, so fours tend to compare themselves to others kind of automatically and often feel a sense of not being good enough, a sense of inadequacy, a sense that there's something other people have that's good that I don't have. And every type has strengths and challenges. Now, sometimes the challenges are a product of overdoing the strengths and not having a wider range or not seeing them and working against them. But certainly fours, like every type, have a lot of strengths. But I think part of the reason why sometimes people can see some of the negatives in fours more than the positives is because there's a way that fours, in a way that I think is actually a strength, tend to be the most in touch with emotions Uh, And in our culture, so America is a type three culture. And in a type three culture, there's a little bit of a thing of like, you shouldn't be too emotional. And fours tend Mm. to be emotional. They tend to be in touch with intense, deep emotions, a wide range of feelings. So it's important for us to recognize that sometimes we may have a cultural sense that that's not good, but actually it's a strength because when you're emotionally sensitive, it gives you a lot of empathy. It gives you a lot of access to information that your own emotions bring about what's happening to you and how you feel about things. And it also creates a lot of empathy and emotional intuition for relating to other people. For instance, um, you know, I'm a psychotherapist and a lot of my psychotherapist friends are fours and fours make excellent therapists because they're not afraid of being with pain, for instance. I've just got so excited because we've talked about like Hannah's interest in counseling, like her strength of being nonjudgmental and her strength of not being, as you said, afraid of pain, being able to sit comfortably in that space with the tools to help another person or to listen in that space with another person. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit surprised to hear that fours make strong therapists because is it just self-discipline? Like how do they, I don't know, not fall into the mud with their clients? You know, Uh, Indeed. Right. Well, I mean, every type needs to learn that when they're training to be a therapist of how to empathize and kind of go into people's feelings with them, but not get taken over by them. I think fours, because they have a strong connection to themselves, and this is what's really interesting about fours is some types are more other referencing. That means their first line of focus of attention is on other people, but other types are more self-referencing and fours are a self-referencing type. So there's a way that they often don't really let go of their own internal experience, even when they're empathizing with or, or sort of relating to somebody else's experience. So it, they can kind of keep one foot in their own experience. And also, again, any therapist of any type is going to need to develop their skills in working with people and uh, all the different th- skills therapists need. But fours are especially good at welcoming authentic feelings and not judging them, not having a sense of, well, it's bad. It, some types will say, well, look, it's not good to be sad. Well, fours just don't think that. They think if you're sad, you're sad. And you should just accept that and be with it. And that can even be a positive experience of being connected to something that's essentially true in yourself. 
as opposed to the constant impulse our society teaches us, which is the second you have an emotion that comes up to the surface, um, it's about resolving and dismissing that emotion. Exactly. It's either about avoiding it or solving it, fixing it. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I feel like that's why I struggle a lot in all of my jobs because I feel like I can't really be authentic. And I'll just say, as probably all the audience knows, I have cried at work and it was not received well. (laughs) Like. Uh, yeah, I don't know. And I feel like that's kind of almost a perfect storm that you were saying America is a type three because then type fours can kind of reinforce that feeling of, oh, I'm misunderstood. I'm an outsider. No one understands me by virtue of like being emotional in a world that doesn't really want to deal with emotions sometimes. Exactly. Exactly. So no wonder fours sometimes feel like there's something wrong with them right? Because they get that message from society of like, if there's, if you're too emotional, there's something wrong with you. And they're very emotional. And so again, you can see how part of our, the the way we interpret certain aspects of our personality are cultural. And part of them are that we, you know, we can't help taking in messages from the outside. So what would you say, let's say, let's use the example of Hannah Gelb doesn't want to cry at work. Mm, well, I don't know if I really care about not crying at work that much. Ah, <laughs> that's not a problem. Good. <laughs> I, I feel like, uh, I guess I, uh, what I would want to know is where in the world is a good place for me? <laughs> where can people who are very, 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 very emotional function and flourish? That's my question. I guess, it, I don't know. I don't know how you could possibly answer that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always a matter of being more okay with ourselves. Like the more fours value themselves and value their emotions and have compassion for themselves and don't get as influenced if there's kind of a negative response from the outside and don't let them have that shift the way they feel about themselves, the more they can, you know, have the ability to find the best place for them, you know, whether it's a work setting or a relationship. Man, heck, I love it when other I love when strangers cry. I'm like, oh yeah, man, you let it out. Like you need to show people that we're human beings. We're alive. You cry in this airport. I will bring you a napkin. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I know you sound so sad. <laughs> no, I'm just like, oh, I know. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. But you know, it's very much, I guess, the two in me because automatically when I think about you know, crying at work, I'm like, wow, how does that, how does that affect the workday as a whole and the entire work environment? Not that you should not cry. Obviously you should cry, but I can't help but think about like the repercussions of like everyone's experience, I guess, which right, is my, right. which is my, you know, and that's just my instinct. That's my default. Yeah. Well, maybe it would be helpful for me to think more about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe, man. I don't know. We're best yeah. friends. There's got to be a reason why we're here. <laughs> I actually hadn't heard that the Enneagram existed until Fabs came into our lives, or you told me about it once, but I had no idea what this test even was. You know, I'd heard it's like the Myers-Briggs and the, well, I took the Mensa test. You know, different tests. Anyway, I didn't know the Enneagram existed. So I feel like so much of the type four description in Beatrice's book really resonates. And then the thing that doesn't resonate as much, but must be a blind spot for me is really wanting love. But at the same time, like being in this constant cycle of wanting love, but not thinking you're good enough to get it. So not opening up to allow yourself to experience love. 
So I have to look at that. <laughs> but also, I found this so helpful. I never, I never heard this word before. But one of the main defense mechanisms of the type four is introjection. I'd never heard the word introjection, but it's like, oh my god, I do this all the time. Beatrice, can you explain introjection? <laughs> sure. It's a lot of people know what projection is. It's when we we have something in us that we don't want to own, and we project it onto someone else. So let's say we're feeling insecure, we might think that somebody else is doesn't like us or is, isn't sure about us. Interjection is the opposite. It's when you take something inside yourself that's actually somebody else's. Now, um, it's a defense mechanism and all defense mechanisms are unconscious. So what fours do is, let's say someone's critical of them. They will take in, it's like they swallow that critical voice inside themselves, and now they're criticizing themselves from the inside. But it's as a defense mechanism, the intention is to kind of control that. Like, at least if it's coming from inside me, now I can kind of do something about it. I can control it. In reality, our defense mechanisms sometimes protect us, and then at a certain point, they actually start hurting us because we can't stop doing them and we get stuck in them. And so fours basically take in a lot of negative messages from the outside and then view them as true and start owning them as their own. And so one of the things fours need to do is sort of get rid of what's not theirs. So maybe a really critical judging voice that came from a parent that you've interjected and you've kind of wanting to be do, like, if I can put it inside myself, I can do something about it. I can try to be better, but really it, that critical voice keeps staying in there and doing sort of bad things from the inside. So it's important for fours to recognize how they may have interjected ideas about themselves, feelings about themselves that both aren't theirs and aren't true and are actually hurting themselves. With. Wow. I mean, that's just wow. Okay. So <laughs> I feel like just. And, every, the and all the types have a defense mechanism. Yeah. Right. I mean, what's so wow. funny is Thank I. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> I never thought of it as, oh, well, if I can, if it's coming from me, then I, I have control over it. Like, for example, I feel like when I was speaking with my therapist that I had like four or five years ago, I like admired him so much and wanted to be like him. So, like, I did like hear judgment from him, but coming from inside me, but it would, you know, it depends on who I'm with. So then I got this feeling of, well, what is, what are my values? Like, what does my core inside look like if I like eject all these people that I take in so deep, like what is left? I don't even know. Mm -hmm. I mean, something, I hope. (laughs) Yeah, maybe more of the truth. And again, I think that goes back to what you were saying about how it's scary to let go of our defense mechanisms because that's what they make us feel safe, even at the same time they limit us. Oh boy. Okay, well, I'm ready to talk about hand to heart now. (laughs) (laughs) Just to tell everybody that the results of the integrative test that we took, the IEQ 9, Hannah Gelb got uh, a Denogram type four, which is known as the intense creative. She's deeply connected to her emotions uh, and understands feelings in depth. She's attuned to what is meaningful and is very purpose-driven. She's inspired. She is sensitive and courageous. You do not shy away from suffering and painful emotions, giving you the courage to ask difficult questions, which is all awesome. What I think is awesome about knowing our instincts in these ways is that the second you know that you have the courage not to shy away from pain, you also could know, hey, 
if my biggest strength is being able to dive deep into fame, I'm going to have to use my higher self, my conscious self, to know when and where that's appropriate, as opposed to letting myself get flooded and taken away by it. It's kind of like over an overexercised muscle, you know, when you're starting to do like squats or weight training. If your right leg is stronger, your left leg is never going to get a chance to build up its strength. Right. So I think that that's like a real, you know, that's like a real benefit of kind of knowing this stuff and flagging this stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting that it says that because I'm like, I feel like a coward all of the time. But yet here it is saying that I'm courageous. <laughs> well, but it says you do not shy away from suffering and painful emotion. Oh, I, that yes. is courageous. So, yes, my ideas of what courageous are maybe are maybe what the issue is. Well, yeah, or they maybe could, you know, use some expansion. Yeah, right? use some expansion, exactly. Beatrice, I was actually really surprised by my results. You know, a while ago, I took a free test online, and I got uh, a tie between a six and a two. And then I took this test, and it says I'm very much just a two. So can you tell me a little bit about the two and the six and why they might have been related or why? What am I supposed to believe? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Right, right. Yeah. Well, some tests give you more of a bar graph. It shows you sort of how you score in terms, relative terms. The IEQ gives, spits out like one number, you know, and it might not be right, but it spits out one number. So twos and sixes are not connected on on the diagram. However, some types are lookalikes of other types. Uh, and there are some things that the types have in common, you know, twos and especially some kinds of sixes can be warm and friendly like twos are. They can both sort of be concerned about bad things happening. For twos, it's more like more about rejection and something bad happening to someone they love. With sixes, it's a little more global. There, there can be reasons why they come out the same, although I don't know what test you took, so I'm not really sure what the test was measuring itself. Oh, you mean the free one I took? I yeah. just completely disregard it now, now that we've had this uh, this other one that comes with 22 pages. You know, I mean, you really <laughs> yeah. get the bang for your buck. I'm tempted. I'm really tempted to, ta- to pay for the full 44 because I would love to learn more about my tendencies in terms of giving and receiving feedback, conflict and treasures, decision-making, leadership and management. All that comes with the other one. I guess I was just really surprised by my results because... And to read them to everybody, so it says, for me, Hannah Hart, I got Enneagram Type 2, which is also known as the considerate helper. I'm warm. I demonstrate a warm nature. I'm caring. I anticipate the needs of others and generously give. People-centered with a focus on relationships, self-sacrificing, putting own needs and feelings at back burner, and praising, good at paying compliments, compliments and making people feel special. The reason why I'm confused is because all of those things don't add up to what the key word is. Because the key word I got was ambition. Mm-hmm. So that is, I guess, why I'm a little, I, I would love some guidance so in interpreting these results. A- ambition is the description of the subtype, not the type. So subtype is a, another level of complexity. It's basically the idea that there are, there's nine types, but for each of the nine types, there are three versions of that type. And the three versions vary according to which of one of three instinctual drives is most prominent in your experience. So there's a self-preservation drive that's just basically about like my own survival. What do I need to survive? Shelter, resources, things like that. Safety. 
there's a social instinct that's, a, and, and again, these, this is the animal part of us, the part of us we share with, with mammals and even reptiles. It's our reptilian brain, but it's in, you know, in the human personality, it's one level, it's interconnected to our feelings and our thoughts. So the, the social instinct is about getting along with the group or the herd or how one is positioned with respect to others in a group or the community. And then the one-to-one instinct in my book, The Complete Enneagram, called The Sexual Instinct is about bonding with specific others, you know, to support survival. And so each of the, we all have all three, usually it's another division into three. You're in one center of intelligence, you're one type within that center, and then you're one of these three subtypes, because, depending on which is dominant, that will also flavor the way your type expresses itself. Now, the reason this is important is you're, you know, we were talking about growth paths earlier, like what do you do? And, and the Enneagram provides a lot of actionable insights around growth, but it's the growth paths are different depending on which subtype you are. And sometimes they're completely the opposite. And so it's really important, I believe, not all versions of the Enneagram that people will come across will have this subtype a component in it, or it will have one that's not that good. The approach I use comes from this same source that we got the version of the nine types from in the first place. And it's a very authoritative source, Claudio Naranjo. And it's embedded in the IEQ. One of the reasons why the IEQ is a better test is it uses the right version of the subtypes and actually to make it more accurate. So depending on which of these subtypes you are, it has a big difference. So if you came out as a social two, that then the keyword is ambition. But if you came out as self-preservation to, the keyword would not be ambition. And if you came out as a one-to-one to, the keyword would not be. No. And now a social two is a different kind of two and it looks a little bit different. And so one question will be, you know, does the two feel right to you or not, depending on what you know of yourself? And then does the subtype feel right or not? Because the test could get the type right, but not the subtype right. So you'll want to look at that too, the information about the subtype and see, does this fit for me or not? I mean, to be completely candid, they, I do feel like I am a considerate helper with a great deal of ambition. So it does feel right. I think that for me, the cognitive dissonance lied in, you know, the understanding of the type, but it's almost that once you're in the bucket of your number, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and nine, it's the subtypes in that bucket that will provide you the most insight and ability to achieve your growth of your choice. So it makes a lot of sense then pairing the ambition with the considerate helper. I can see how that manifests in myself. And so having this subtype it's almost pretty crucial to understanding your, your number at all or really Definitely. like understanding, you Definitely. know? So yes. I feel like when people get their numbers for the Enneagrams, they're really lacking. It's kind of like saying, oh yeah, you grew up in California, but that does nothing to let you know about the socioeconomic or physical, like all the circumstances that surrounded your growth, right? Exactly. Exactly. So. Exactly. It's like, yeah, it's like having a map that just shows the highways and the big streets, but not the small streets to know exactly where you live. You know. I mean, this is absolutely like just so fascinating. And I wish the results were a little bit like kind of made for the layman. You know, I really feel like this is the kind of results that you need to be really kind of walked through and guided through because there's, um, well, frankly, a lot of text. Uh, but I think <laughs> well, I'll tell you this: it's th- that particular test is designed for use in business and for use with a coach. So it, it's exactly like you're saying. You can go on their you can go on their site and take it, you know. But 
they mainly market this test to coaches and business consultants for use in businesses where like I do a lot of this in business where someone I have a team and they all take the test. And then I have a 50 minute session with each person on that team to orient them to their results. That's why if you do take the IAQ online, just as a one-off on their site, I would strongly recommend having one of my books around so you can read a lot more about it and not just go from what's in the report because the report also, you know, I I don't agree with 100% of the report to tell you the truth. I think sometimes it's not very well phrased. I would say get the book and I have, you know, the, the nine types of leadership is a little bit more introductory book for people who are brand new. And it also talks about workplace relationships. Both books Ooh, can give was, you more I'm going to order that context. right now, literally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that way you get more context. Honestly, I think that like the types are really useful when you know your goals. And I think that for me, I want two things simultaneously. I want to be considerate, helpful, and effective. I also, on a deeper level for my personal experience of this life, would like to feel the sense of having done enough. And reading about this, I don't know if a two's nature is to ever feel like you've done enough because there's always something that needs doing. Sure. So I think that that's kind of like what I personally want to take away from researching this and and gaining this kind of information and insight is to see if there's a way or a wing or a subtype I could lean to during those moments where I feel like nothing's ever enough. So I know for me that that's something I'm going to look into as I kind of explore what the Enneagram has revealed, you know? Yeah. Oh, I see many, many follow-up episodes on the Enneagram. (laughs) I see many. It's it's a really fascinating tool. And and I, I, yeah. Guys, if you're on the fence about the book, I would also really recommend it because it also just has a lot of information about where the Enneagram comes from and what the symbol means. And also then you can, uh, you know, annoyingly uh, decide all the people in your life what their types are and then talk to them about it. Yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Um, Beatrice, can I, and this is the last question I'd like to ask you, which is based on our results or based on just kind of your experience, if there's anything one, each of us should watch out for as a, you know, I'm an ambitious two and Hannah's a shameful four. Man, sorry, bro. We're, <laughs> we're both social. We're both social subtypes. That's kind of fun, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, what would you say if there's anything a shameful for and ambitious to should watch out for on this earth? Uh, if you have any thoughts on that, as we kind of wrap up our time here together. Sure, sure. I mean, there are a lot of things, but I'll suggest one or two for each. So for the social two, social twos can um, have some blind spots because pride is a key aspect, which is wanting to be important and see yourself in a positive light and they want to be important to other people. So sometimes it's important to notice something that can be unconscious for twos and especially social twos, which is giving to other people as a way of really secretly wanting something back. It can sometimes social twos can think, I'm just being altruistic or generous or selfless and I don't really want anything in return when sometimes they really do want something. And sometimes it's just approval, but other times it's something more specific. So it's like twos aren't very in touch with their needs. And so they give to others as an indirect way of hoping that other people will give back to them in reciprocal fashion. And so it can be important for them just to be aware of that. Yeah. Sound familiar? I I (laughs) think, yeah, super familiar. I think that this is like exactly the lesson I learned in college when I stopped having unhealthy, toxic friendships is that, I mean, this is years and years before the Enneagram, but 
the um, the instinct to give as a method of control is something I yes observed, that's it. Exactly. observed about myself. And so yes. that's good. Okay. I feel pretty good because I'm like, oh yeah, that's something I know. Cause I can literally feel it in my body. I can that's feel great. fear. Originally it started out by me looking at why do I have this urge to give? And then in the moment, as I'm sitting there in this feeling, being like, it is so unnecessary for me to make myself the center of this person's solution. And then right. walking it back and coming back to down, deep, deep down, it's always fear. It's fear and control. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm glad this just kind of like affirms a tendency that I've already observed in myself. So that honestly is a little bit comforting because then I can keep working on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a really good awareness. And, and one that some social, some twos don't have, especially social twos, they sometimes don't see about how helping is about control and power and, and, and not just being altruistic. That's great. Uh, no, nah. I'm also a Scorpio, so I love the bitter hard truth. So it all works out. Um, <laughs> good. Um, and then what about our what about our beautiful four? And for fours, <laughs> it's it's important for fours to own their positive qualities because they can focus on what's missing or what they're lacking or how they're not good enough. And actually, that's often just a false false way of thinking. It's not really true. And so it's important for them to really look at taking in the good, really owning their qualities and gifts, and not always sort of uh, looking at what they don't have. Yep. It's really fascinating, this, yep, this yep, shame yep, yep, yep. subtype under the social four. What's a tool for confronting that? Or <laughs> like, Hannah, you're being such a two right now. You're like, let me... Help you for <laughs> by asking what these tools are for your type. <laughs> well, also any listeners who might and any cool. listeners too, <laughs> totally true. Yes, yeah, it's about really, really becoming really aware of the habit, the the mental and emotional habits associated with making yourself less than, or taking the inferior position, or taking the victim role. And getting stuck in negative feelings about yourself instead of taking action to do something to get what you want or express your gifts in the world. So it's really sort of both pushing out the bad stuff and actively taking in the good stuff. When someone gives you a compliment, consider that that's really the truth and work on taking that in and letting it feed your sense of who you are so that you value yourself more, which is more in line with probably what's actually true anyway. And four is like the truth. Gosh, I just feel like uh, it's just so true that I don't take in all the good things about myself. And I have my friends and my family are constantly telling me all the good things about myself. But then my brain, I'm always like, but what if they're just wrong? (laughs) And also the comparison reflex, you know, like I was really shocked in looking at that result that you got with the four, because it's like, we always, we have a phrase we like to say, Beatrice, that comparison is death. Um, mm. because, mm. because it is kind of, a, it is, it's just not helpful. Like, what do you do in the face of that instinct? Where, like, in the same way that my fear instincts, like control the situation by being helpful. Is there any insight that the Enneagram can offer about the reflex of the instinct to compare oneself to another? Right. Well, the, the main thing is to sort of exercise the muscle of self-awareness so that you are aware when you're doing it. Even if you can't stop doing it right away, becoming more and more aware of it, like, oh, there I go again. Oh, I'm doing it again. Doing that, first of all, that alone can shift things. But when it can't, it's sort of the pathway to eventually being able to shift it. Because the more you see it, the more you are aware of it when it's happening, the more room there eventually is to consciously choose to do it differently. 
So just one last thing about the fear. Uh, I feel like I'm afraid to own all of those good things about myself. Like I'm afraid to own those things and I don't really know why. And that's kind of weird for me because usually I can kind of figure out an underlying motivation, but it just seems so illogical to be afraid of the good things about yourself. Yeah. I think it happens for all of us that when we're really doing effective inner growth work, it's scary because we're having to let go of the known of what's familiar of the way we've always done it. And unfortunately it's that fear that keeps our habits in place and stops us from changing. So part of this path and part of working on yourself with the Enneagram is necessarily coping with fear. And it's good that you're naming that because I think some people start doing this and they get afraid and they just stop. And so it's important to know to expect that as you work on loosening your defenses, fear will naturally arise and be something you need to contend with. Wow. I love that. Beautiful. It's almost like a fear is a flag that you're heading in the right direction because yeah. you're entering into the unknown, oh, yeah. a space that you've never been. Yeah. <gasps> Maybe wow. that should be our oh, sign off. Beatrice. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, you, you, just absolutely incredible. Thank you so much. I am so glad that I now have this book in my life. For those of you who are interested in reading Beatrice's work, there are the the nine leadership types and also the books that we have, which are the complete Enneagram, 27 Paths to Greater Self-Knowledge by Beatrice Chestnut. There's a lot here to chew on, and I feel like that this is a very helpful roadmap, and it's up to the individual what they make of it, but I'm glad that a resource like this exists and can be explored, and thank you for putting it into words. I also really appreciate your Odyssey analogies. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me. It's been great talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Earbuds, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Analyze This. If you want to become a patron of this podcast and keep it alive, that would be great. Uh, You can go ahead and head over to patreon.com slash Hanalyze This, where you can give us, you know, five bucks a month. That's basically a cup of coffee to help keep Hanalyze This going and going strong. Also, if you want to take any of these tests or get any of these books, they'll be on the Twitter. You can find them. I'm going to go now because it's hot and I'm thirsty. But I hope you really enjoyed this. Rate, review, and above all else, subscribe. No, above all else, have a great day. Bye, earbuds.